Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Deborah Davis, a professor of sociology at Yale University. Professor Davis's primary teaching and research interests are historical and comparative sociology, inequality and stratification, and contemporary Chinese society. She is a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and has just completed a six-year term chairing the Social Science and Humanities Panel of the Hong Kong Government Research Committee. This past July, Professor Davis organized a workshop at Hong Kong University as part of a larger project on Chinese marriage and sexuality. Today we talk with her about the changing trends of marriage and divorce in China. Welcome, Professor Davis. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Let's begin um, with an overview of your larger project. Tell us about it. The project actually began with a study about privatization of real estate. You know that in the socialist era in China, which goes roughly from 1950 to 1980, in the cities, if you owned your house, you could keep your house, but gradually, virtually all new housing was publicly owned and other, uh, private housing was reclaimed. So the experience was of people dependent on the state to arrange their families, and it had a huge impact on many aspects of their lives. So I was writing a book about the privatization of urban housing, and in the next to last chapter that I was uh, about to finish uh, in this book, I wanted to look at what happens at divorce. Mm -hmm. That is, I knew the rules of the game, I knew the law, but I wanted to understand how did people understand what was fair? Mm -hmm. How did they want to split this, this home and under these new conditions of market socialism? And the, as a result of doing the focus groups and the follow-up um, on divorce, I realized that really what was the big story what would make an original book would be a book what I'm calling post-socialist marriage. So it's the way in which housing has come to the heart of understanding uh, why people marry, when people marry, and the quality of, of their marriage. So I backed into it. Mm -hmm. And how, do, how does the paper you presented in Hong Kong fit into this larger project? Um, what I did in Hong Kong, I should step back. Last year when I was uh, working in Hong Kong, it became fascinating to me in the ways in which um, marriage and sexual practices in Hong Kong were looking more and more on what I was seeing on the other side of the border. And then when I looked at other materials, I realized there was convergence between the Taiwan, Hong Kong, and PRC experience. So I put together um, a group of people to investigate what I call sexuality and marriage in cosmopolitan China. And the paper I wrote um, in July is just one piece of that comparison across the three countries. And my focus is particularly on the legal aspect, that is how the state's role vis-a-vis -vis marriage, how they've written the marriage law, how they've policed um, divorce in particular, reflects larger um, patterns of state control over people's private lives. And what are some of the fundamental changes in marriage that you're seeing in this time period that you're researching? Uh, the time period is a little flexible. That is, the paper really talks about the last 10 years, but the larger one goes back 30 years. In other words, it goes back to 1980, approximately, okay. when we think of China's market reforms beginning. Um, it also is the year in which they passed a new marriage law. And the marriage law was sometimes seen by some people as a, a divorce law because mm -hmm. it made it much easier for people to 
if couples agreed to then simply file for divorce. They really didn't have to go through a court procedure if both agreed and there was no conflict. Mm -hmm. um, so it's over this 30-year period that, I, that I'm really looking at. There are five things that, that are really remarkable about 1980 um, to the present. And first comes from the affluence. Mm -hmm. We all know that, that China has moved from being a low income, actually very impoverished society, to being lower middle income. And now more billionaires in China than any place else in the world. So you wow. also have mm -hmm. enormous wealth. One of the first things that people did with their new wealth, whether they were very wealthy or middling wealthy, um, was to purchase homes. And therefore, one of the key things that's changed is that marriage now, in many cases, depends on owning a home and purchasing a home. And the centrality of that home ownership now occupies um, a centrality in the spouse relationship that was absent, totally absent when it was a public health, a public housing okay. regime as it was under socialism. So the first change is this housing piece and the affluence piece. The second is the one-child policy, uh, which also was passed in the same period, 1980 is when it starts to take effect. And as soon as you, the state, uh, mandates one child per couple, you have radically changed the character of marriage. If marriage was about becoming par parents of usually two or more children, mm -hmm. um, the sexual relationship with spouses is different. And also the balance um, of power, you could almost say, in the household is different. So we're now looking in urban China, which is the majority of people now, um, in families in which there are two adults and one child, and clearly that creates a different dynamic in a marriage sure. in which children outnumber parents. That's the second thing. The third is this vast migration that we all know about. 250 million Chinese have left their home uh, towns and moved elsewhere. And this also has changed marriage in a fundamental way in that people find their partners usually without very much supervision from their parents, direct supervision, uh, if they're on the move. And then it also means that if there's a bad relationship, a bad marriage, people are much freer to leave and start again. Mm -hmm. So that's a, another huge change, because in the socialist era, people were really nailed to place. And that was, you were stuck with the neighbors you had as well as the spouse you had. Mm -hmm. And now China's in a very different place. Um, the fourth thing is a cultural revolution, not like the one that Mao initiated in the 60s, but one that was commercially driven and also driven by this reintegration of the Chinese diaspora, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, Taiwan, even the United States, so that people returning to uh, visit family or people moving back and forth between different Chinese communities brought different sexual mores. You could, in an earlier period, the idea of, of premarital sex, extramarital sexual relations was often branded bourgeois and Western, and this is hardly the case uh, ever. Um, Westerners don't have a monopoly on these behaviors, and this has led to a liberalization of, of people's sexual relationships, mm -hmm. um, which is radically different than the socialist era, in which the government really had quite a puritanical policing of people's private lives. And then the last, which is the other part of my paper, and, and what we're talking about is the divorce mm -hmm. revolution. Um, divorce rates now in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China are just about the same as the United States. And it has ratcheted up very, very quickly. So it's 
a startling phenomena, and that's tied to liberalization of the law, but also a totally different attitude by the court officials who now don't stand in the way of divorce as they did before. So how has it changed? Divorce is easy. There's a great deal of, of sexual experimentation, um, sexual, casual sexual relations before marriage, in marriage, um, which was absent before. Mm -hmm. This movement of men and women that allows them to have more freedoms. Um, the affluence, which creates a much higher standard of living and a focus particularly on purchasing the perfect house and putting the, really one's life savings into this conjugal home, mm -hmm. even as the divorce rate is very high. So these things are the five characteristics mm -hmm. that I think define what I'm calling post-socialist right. marriage. So it sounds like there is tremendous change taking place. Huge. Are, are there <laughs> any um, significant continuities during this time period? Um, there are, I would think, two which are important. And one is about childbearing. Mm -hmm. China continues, as in Japan um, and in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, um, there's very little ma uh, childbearing outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. So marriage equates with children. One marries and one becomes a parent. There really isn't too much discussion about that. Mm -hmm. Moreover, uh, children are only born within marriage. So this is a, a continuity from the socialist period into, the pre -so into where we are now, post-socialist. And the other is about the intergenerational investment. Um, even in the socialist period, um, parents, even though they couldn't control the, the property in the cities, they couldn't in, in the countryside, were very much uh, engaged in helping their children establish a household if they could. Mm -hmm. And that has continued, so that parents are deeply involved in the purchase of these very expensive mm -hmm. con condominiums, which is the most standard form. So that's um, those, I would say, are the two, that married uh, children are born within marriage, even though there's a great deal of sexual uh, experimentation and latitude about partners inside and outside of marriage, children are really uh, tied to mm -hmm. a married pair. Uh, which is, I'm thinking about our country and, and how that's very different. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess my question is, are there higher abortion rates and higher contraception use then, I would imagine? It's, I don't have the rates for the U.S. in mm -hmm. my head, um, but on the abortion rate, it is, so I can't tell you specifically, sure. is it higher or lower than the United States? Mm -hmm. um, the ratio of, of abortion to birth certainly went up after 1980. Um, abortion is on demand in, in China, mm -hmm. and it's not very costly. Um, there are claims, and I saw a TV program this summer, which talked about very high rates of abortion. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, eight to one birth. Wow. That is totally um, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Whether it's two to one, I don't think that's high. I think it's, it's much lower. But this would be, this, it would be guesstimates almost, because right. it's okay. so hard to get that information. Um, on the contraception side, there is, contraception is easy to get. Um, it's very low cost. And there is, they've done a, a massive public education uh, push so that condom use by men is not resisted in the same extent as it might be in some other countries. Mm -hmm. And um, the level of, of education in China is so high that I wouldn't, I'm not saying all teenage women or young adults have uh, 
great knowledge mm -hmm. of how to control their uh, fertility, but in comparison to other countries at the similar level of development, China is way, way ahead. So in that respect, if you want a comparison, it right. wouldn't be with the United States so much, mm -hmm. but if we compared it to India, Indonesia, Nigeria, um, what we're dealing with, or Brazil, this is a population that is very um, instrumental in many ways and has enough education and also availability of a range of contraception mm -hmm. that people, um, that women in particular, have more control over their fertility than is true in a comparable level of I development. See. Okay. Let's talk about your methodology. How did you do your research? I use every method <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> uh, so I start with the documents and now uh, in the last 10 years in China, virtually all statistics that are government released are also digitally available so that we have vast storehouses of those types of documents. The legal documents also are easily available online and hard copy. Mm -hmm. So I use documents as one way. I've done a lot with internet. I use blogs. I follow blogs in different ways. Um, there's a great deal of media that's on uh, digitally, that's available digitally, for example, TV series. You hear afterwards there's a popular TV series. In the past, I would have had to be in China to watch it. Now, I can sit in New Haven and mm -hmm. watch it. Um, and then the connections we have are so good with China, with people going back and forth, you can get um, an email or a call saying, have you seen this episode? And you actually can just watch it on internet. Mm -hmm. And there have been some really very, very interesting um, novellas, uh, was really what I would call them, multi-part soap opera light things that are a movie that would stretch for 56 episodes, sure. for example, mm -hmm. over, over a year or half a year. So I, I use the internet and I also do a lot of interviewing. Uh, for this project we've done a variety of interviews, and particularly in Shanghai and Guangzhou. And I've also done focus groups okay. because I think this is a way in which I can get the natural speech. When you're in an interview you can't. You ask sure. people what they think and then they respond in a form, either formulaic or very uh, measured way. And what I'm interested in very often is what are the underlying expectations or underlying anxieties that people have that is driving their behavior. Mm -hmm. And what I do in the focus groups is I set up a problem and then I open it up and we just steer them and then we use the transcripts afterwards to look at what words are spoken by which people at what point mm -hmm. in the conversation and, and that's been useful. Okay. How does the one policy, uh, the one child policy um, affect the research that you've done and, and is it still in effect? Yes. Um, it was initially um, discussed in 79 and, and the government chose a, a group of nuclear uh, fission scientists to help de de develop this policy and it was a letter that went out, not legislation, but it has then been incorporated in other ways. So mm -hmm. from 1980 onward this was the rule. Now in, in the rural areas people pushed back and they did not comply and there were heavy penalties people still did not comply. I'm curious what are the penalties? Well when it was a socialist system you could withhold pay, you could withhold care because people there was no market. Mm -hmm. Now the, there are relatively few penalties. Um, they can uh, in the city in the countryside where there's harsh pressure on local officials. They will tear down people's houses. Oh my they, goodness. Right. They will and they put very high uh, financial penalties on 
on rural families. That era has passed. Um, the policy still is one child, although it's modified in rural areas. If the first child is a boy, after four years, you're, quote, allowed to have a gr another child. Mm -hmm. It's more relaxed than that. So in, in many ways, it's functionally two children in the countryside and one in the city. It was supposed to end after 20 years. And the last 10 years, several sociologists, including my co-author in the Inequality book, have been working with the Chinese government to run experiments to see what will happen if you relax. Will, in fact, you have a huge baby boom or not? Mm -hmm. And the results show that, no, about 50% of the people will not go on to have a second or unauthorized child there satisfied with the number that they have, mm -hmm. and a certain number will go on, mostly those who had a girl and want a boy, but not always. There's a, there's a, girls are valuable, mm -hmm. and many families, the ideal is one boy and one girl, and that's really what people would strive for if there was no limit. But we now are 20, almost 30 years, we're 30 years into this policy, so that's the generation of young parents now are singletons themselves, and it's not clear what, what singletons, are there, is, there, is there a pattern? So the government, however, continues to be extremely um, rigid and say without the one-child policy, uh, we'll have a population boom. Um, no experts believe that. Uh, the biggest problem in China, which is a result of this policy, is one, this rapid aging of the population. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's extraordinary how quickly they're going to move to being a very aged society, more than 20% of the population over age 60. But the other piece is this gender imbalance, because mm -hmm. the preference for sons is so strong. And these last 20 years, it's basically 118 boys for every 100 girls. And as that group moves into the marriage age, you can see there aren't enough sure. women. And so this is, a very, this is really serious uh, and unplanned from the perspective of the government, but not unexpected on the part of the demographers. It'll so. be interesting to see what the future brings there. Yeah. Um, finally, how do your conclusions about marriage speak to the larger um, trends in social and, and political, um, social and political trends in China and um, globally as well? Because of what I've done for my research, I, I think the number one is about this property rights issue. Uh -huh. That's how I, I looked at it. And what I've been able to see um, in this research is, is this gendered piece to the extent that I, it almost seems that um, maleness and femaleness is more important than class and okay. money. And that's not what you would necessarily, well, it's definitely not what we see in the United States where class trumps gender very mm -hmm. often in the, in the marriage area. So China is an interesting case, and it highlights this, this issue about um, gender distinctions in personal life, but how those gender distinctions do or don't change in the context of, of economic uh, changes and legal changes. So I think the property rights is huge. Um, I mean, it has implications mm -hmm. beyond for China beyond marriage and beyond China. The second place is this migration aspect I flagged, this vast migration. Mm -hmm. um, it has also meant more cross-border marriages. I mean, if you look at the, at the micro level, take the case of Taiwan. In 2003, 31% of marriages in Taiwan had a non-Taiwanese spouse. Most of them 
were Chinese, mm -hmm. PRC, Chinese. And what that means, just as in our society, when we look at migration issues, cross-border migration, marriage, are questions about citizenship mm -hmm. and questions about you know, who is deserving to be a migrant and what does it mean to be a citizen. So actually from this marriage uh, issue, which to some people seems so private and um, micro, you're able actually to look at these much larger debates about citizenship. Very interesting. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thank you for asking me. For more information about Professor Davis and her research, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.